Today's episode is sponsored by Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BrainsOn. Just go to Indeed.com slash BrainsOn right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BrainsOn. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to BrainsOn, where we're serious about being curious. Brains On is supported in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. Hello, hello, hello. I'm your host, Molly Bloom, and today our producer, Mark Sanchez, is joining me. Hello, 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 Molly. Today we're going to tackle a question about sneezing. Why does the heat of the sun provoke sneezing and not the heat of the fire? Interesting question, right? Right, but that wasn't from one of our listeners. Nope. This question was asked over 2,300 years ago. By Greek philosopher and scientist Aristotle. Which leads us to Caitlin and Megan from Portland, Oregon. Hi, I'm Caitlin, and I'm nine years old. Hi, I'm Megan, and I'm seven years old. Our question is, why does the sun make you sneeze? Whenever I come out from the store, from school, and out to recess. If it's a sunny day and I happen to glance up at the sky, I sneeze. We don't know why we sneeze when we look up at the sun. They ask pretty much the same question as Aristotle. 2,300 years later. To find an answer, we turn to Dr. Louis Patachik. He's a neurologist and human geneticist. Yeah, he studies the brain and the genes that make up all humans. So why do we sneeze when we look at the sun? The bottom line is that nobody knows. 2,300 years later, and still nobody knows. But Dr. Patachik has looked into the phenomenon. It's called photic sneeze reflex. You know what reflexes are. When you touch a hot stove accidentally, even before we realize that it's hot, we've begun to draw our hand away. There are many reflexes in all animals, but certainly in us humans. And so people speculate that perhaps photic sneeze is an abnormal reflex where a stimulus like bright light somehow leads to activity in the part of the brainstem where the nerves are that cause the sneeze to be initiated. Normally, sneezing is our body's way of getting an irritant out of our airways. Let's say you breathe in some dust or mold. Black pepper is always a good bet. Take a big whiff of black pepper and it gets caught in the lining on the inside of your nose. The mucosa. Our bodies kick into action. Pepper in the mucosa. Repeat, pepper in the mucosa. First, the phrenic nerve sends a signal to the brain. Pepper alert! Pepper alert! Hey brain, we got a pepper emergency! Don't worry, I got this. Diaphragm, contract. The brain sends a message back down the phrenic nerve telling your diaphragm... The muscle beneath your lungs... ...to contract and expel air. Which we know as... (coughs) A sneeze. So photic sneeze reflex triggers a sneeze even when there's no irritant present. Dr. Patachik has been studying photic sneeze reflex over the years. It turns out Caitlin and Megan have their parents to thank for this condition. About 10% of the entire population has photic sneeze reflex. If someone doesn't and they hear about this, they say, wow, that sounds really funny. 
if you tell this story to someone who has photic sneeze reflex, they will often say, oh, really? Doesn't everybody do that? Because they do it and some of their family members do it. It doesn't seem to have any benefit as you know, pulling our hand away from a hot stove would, but it occurs in a large number of people for reasons that are completely unclear. So we know that sneezing from the sun is probably genetic, but we still don't know why some people are wired to do this. We know that about 10% of people sneeze when exposed to bright light. Like when you come out of a dark movie theater on a sunny day. But there's nothing really wrong with an extra sneeze now and then, so there's not much interest in figuring out how to stop this. But Dr. Fatachik thinks that finding the genes that cause photic sneeze reflex could help in treating people with more serious problems. In some percentage of patients with epilepsy, if some of those patients are exposed to a flashing strobe light, in some cases that can precipitate a seizure. Some of your listeners will have heard about this in Japan where a particular video game and the flashing movements on the screen was causing some children in Japan to have seizures, for example. A seizure is when brainwaves get out of their normal rhythm. And when they happen, they usually last for a few minutes. Now, there's a lot of different ways seizures can be felt in a person's body. Some people feel nauseous or feel tingling in their bodies. Sometimes they twitch or lose vision. Sometimes a seizure comes on very strong and a person will fall down and start shaking all over. Some people get seizures because of the way their brains work. Other people can have seizures triggered by outside factors like the video game Dr. Ptacek just mentioned. So there are many different reflex phenomena some of which are problematic. I mean, having seizures obviously is a much more serious thing to happen than than sneezing. But it is my thought that if we could understand what it is that causes photic sneeze reflex, that it might teach us something about some of these other reflex phenomena. Some mice and a handful of people are known to have seizures when they hear a loud noise. Dr. Patachik's lab has been able to isolate and clone the gene that causes these kind of seizures. And in doing that, they might be able to figure out a way to stop those seizures. The same might be true for seizures brought on by strobe lights. And looking for a gene that causes photic sneeze reflex could be the first step. To Caitlin and Megan... And all the photic sneezers out there... There's no known reason for why you sneeze when you see a bright light. Maybe you can just think of it as being part of a special club. Kind of a... Uh, a a sneeze club. In just a minute, we're going to answer more questions our listeners want to know about noses and what's inside them. But first, it's time for the mystery sound. Shh. Here it is. Any guesses? Well, I have a pretty good guess, I think, of what it, as to what it is. Um... I hear two clicking sounds. So there's like that first initial little little sound, and then there's like a, a bunch of clicks. And I have heard that sound before, I'm pretty sure, at mini golf. Some people call it putt-putt. <laughs> Do you want to hear it one more time? <laughs> yeah, let, let's verify. Okay, here it is. Yep. I'm gonna st- I'm gonna stick with my guess. Mini golf. What's happening at mini golf during that sound? I well, if you're talking about my mini golf, <laughs> uh, it's got to be a hole in one. Oh, <laughs> it's the okay. ball going in the hole. The ball going in the hole in mini golf. All right, here is the answer. I'm Madeline from Pendleton, Indiana, and I'm eight years old. I'm Jackson, and I'm five years old. 
That is the sound of a golf ball going in the hole. I like that sound because it reminds me of my family playing miniature golf. I was right. Nice work. Ah,、oh, my years of mini golf have paid off. <laughs> Finally. Finally. You gotta stay listening, though. Next time you're out and about mini golfing, or soccering, or just exploring your neighborhood, keep your ears open for good mystery sounds. They're everywhere. You can send them to us by going to brainson.org/contact. And while you're there, you can send us the answer to this question we've been wondering about. If aliens came to Earth and you could only serve them one dish to introduce them to the food of our planet, what dish would it be, and why? We'll include some of your answers in our series coming up about the science of cooking. So send us your dishes at brainson.org/contact. Mark, what would you serve the aliens? Well, for sure, I would serve the aliens a taco platter. Why? Because you can put anything in those delicious tortillas. You've got meat options, vegetarian options, vegan options, cheese options. And this is good for aliens because we don't really know what kind of food they're into. Yeah, they might just, you know, you could just even give them a plain tortilla, and that would be good. True. Who doesn't love tacos? That's right. Who doesn't? Speaking of tacos, I haven't had lunch yet. Adios. So who's going to co-host the rest of the episode with me? Hey guys, it's me, Brains On producer Sandin Totten. Oh, hey Sandin. So I have to ask you, what dish would you serve the aliens? Oh, well, you know I have Swedish roots. I would serve them a pickled herring, a famous delicacy in my land. Why should that represent food to the aliens? Well, I figure if they can get past the pickled herring and they still want to come meet us, they're probably pretty decent people, <laughs> you know, friendly, outgoing, and willing to give anything a try. That's a good thought. Well, if you have an idea for a dish like Mark and Sandin, head to brainson.org/contact. And while you're there, you can also send us your questions. That's what Jordan did. Go, Jordan. My question is, why do sloths move so slow? You'll hear the answer to that, and learn about some superpowers sloths have at the end of the show during our moment of um. And you'll also get to hear the latest group to be added to the Brains Honor Roll. Those are the rad kids who make our show an awesome parade of ideas and voices by sharing stuff with us. Stay tuned. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in. Our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto. The stock market and so much more, and best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org/academy. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in. Our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org/academy. Now we're diving into a topic that we are very excited about. Too excited? Maybe. No, 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 no way! How could you be too excited when it comes to something this incredibly cool? Of course, we are talking about snot, boogers, nose jams, schnoz jelly, whatever you want to call it. We are really excited because your questions led us to find out that nasal mucus, as it's formally known, is 
really, really cool. Magical, even. Our first booger question comes courtesy of Harrison in Lakewood Ranch, Florida. My question is, how do boogers get in your nose, and why aren't they in other parts of your body? Very nice, Harrison. A two-part question. First, the source. Boogers come from mucus that's made in your nose, and it's basically super-powered. Dr. Holly Boyer, who's an otolaryngologist at the University of Minnesota, treats patients who have nasal and sinus issues. I have a lot of experience with nasal mucus. And it's really important stuff. That mucus does some key things for your body. First, it makes sure the air you breathe in won't hurt your lungs. It moisturizes the air that you breathe. If you go outside and it's cold and you breathe in through your mouth, it hurts your throat, it hurts your lungs, it kind of burns. But if you breathe through your nose, the air becomes completely humidified. By the time it reaches the back of the nose, it's almost 100% humidified. So the air that reaches your lungs is nice and wet and it doesn't hurt your lungs. The other thing mucus does is it cleans and filters the air you breathe. And the way it does that is super cool. Your nose is constantly making mucus. It's made by what are called goblet cells in your nose. The mucus in your nose um, is a sticky substance. It's made partially of water, actually mostly water, about 95% water. More specifically, it's salt water. And about 5% of it is made of sticky substances like proteins and substances that your body secretes to make it sticky. And the stickiness is key. It acts as a kind of flypaper that traps nasty things that we don't want to breathe into our lungs. Viruses, fungus, bacteria, dust, pollens. There are, are chemicals in there that make it really hostile for bacteria and fungi and viruses to live. So there are chemicals and cells that attack those invaders. There's also um, antibodies to recognize whether or not it's something good or something bad. So once these get caught, where do they go? It turns out your nose is an efficient self-cleaning system, basically replacing your nasal mucus every 20 minutes. So the same cells that line the inside of the nose that secrete the mucus also have little tiny microscopic hairs on them. And it's really interesting that the flow of mucus is pre-programmed. It constantly is being swept into the back of the nose, except for a very small part in the front of your nose, which gets propelled forward, which is in a very convenient place for your fingers to reach it. These hairs Holly mentioned aren't the ones you can see at the front of your nose. Those hairs are great for filtering out big things like bugs and dirt. The hairs that sweep the mucus back and out of your nose are very, very tiny. You can only see these with a microscope, and they're constantly moving. And so that, that sticky mucus that's full of all that bad stuff that it filtered out of the air, you swallow that. And it's fine to swallow it. An interesting fact is that your nose produces one to two liters of mucus per day. And most of that you don't even notice because it's continually being um, swept into the back of your nose by those little hairs, and you just swallow it. Good thing about swallowing is that when it goes into your stomach, anything that's alive, like a virus or bacteria or fungus, dies because of the acid content in your stomach. So the acid in your stomach kills all that stuff that your nose so efficiently filtered. So it's pretty sophisticated. The air you breathe in through your nose goes to your lungs, but the mucus produced by your nose goes into your stomach. Now, like Holly said, most of the mucus is swept back and swallowed, but a small bit at the front is pushed forward where it becomes boogers. Okay, now for the second part of Harrison's question. Why aren't they in other parts of your body? 
that's a really good question, but there's a, there is a logical answer to that. So there are other places in your body where you make mucus, you make mucus in your stomach and in your GI tract and in your lungs. Your nose, however, is where all of the air in the atmosphere comes into your body. So it dries out. So boogers are just dry mucus and it's just airflow. Our next mucus mystery comes from Milo from West Palm Beach, Florida. My question is, why does your nose get stuffy when you're sick? Good question, Milo. I mean, you'd think our bodies would try to help us breathe by giving us as much air as possible, not try to make it harder to breathe. Here's Dr. Holly Boyer again with the answer. So when you get sick, especially with viral infections, the most common infection in the nose, the virus goes in and it infects that lining tissue to the nose. And all of those cells that are producing mucus and that have those little hairs, those get damaged. And when they're damaged, there's irritation of the underlying tissue. And one of the responses that your body has is to secrete lots of mucus. Part of that is probably to try to wash the debris out of the nose. And that's why you have thicker mucus. It's more colored when you have an infection, is that it's full of debris and dead cells. So that increased amount, it may be somewhat protective in that it's trying to wash some of that away. And it also promotes healing because for your the inside of your nose to heal after a viral infection, it's almost like healing from a burn. The inside needs to be healthy and moist um, to promote that healing. Our next and last question is from Lydia of Holland, Michigan. Why do you get a runny nose when you're outside in the cold? Shouldn't your snot freeze? Great question. Not only is our nose able to humidify the air we breathe, it's also an excellent thermometer. So there's a, there's a really sensitive temperature sensing system in the nose. And when you breathe in cold air, it increases the blood flow to your nose because your nose is really efficient at also warming the air. So like I said before, when you breathe in cold, dry air, it hurts your lungs. The coldness hurts your lungs too. So increased blood flow to the nose warms the air that you breathe. As you increase the blood flow, you also increase some of the stimulation to the nose that produces secretions. So more blood in the nose means more mucus produced by those cells. And it's warm enough inside your nose that it doesn't freeze. So our noses and the mucus that's in them are pretty amazing and important. Dr. Holly Boyer hopes you give a little love to the super-powered nasal mucus that keeps us healthy. So maybe next time you blow your nose, say thanks to all that mucus, you know, before you toss it out. Mucus is good for you. It's protecting your lungs. It's filtering out things that could hurt you. Um, and even though people think it's annoying and gross, if you didn't have it, you'd have a lot more trouble. That's it for this episode of Brains On. Brains On is produced by me, Sandin Totten. Me, Molly Bloom. And Mark Sanchez, who's still eating lunch somewhere. We had production help from Lauren D. and John Lambert and engineering help from Veronica Rodriguez. And did you know that we have started a new podcast called Smash Boom Best? It's a show where we pit two awesome things against each other to decide which one is the Smash Boom Best. Some of the matchups include Super Speed versus Super Strength, Pizza versus Tacos, and Cats versus Dogs. You can find Smash Boom Best wherever you get your podcasts. Now, before we go, it's time for our moment of um. My name is Jordan Major from Los Angeles, and my question is, why do sloths move so slow? Well, the easy answer for that question is that sloths move slow for protection. Mainly, when you think about it, an animal living in the rainforest, 
if they're not moving, they're probably not going to be seen. So that is their ultimate defense from predators is to be able to camouflage themselves in the canopies. So my name is Taryn Dwyer and I'm a zookeeper here at the Minnesota Zoo working in our close encounter department. So sloths don't move far at all during the day and they only move actually probably less than half of a football field in one day. If they did want to move quick, they definitely could. They're really highly adapted to be able to move around in those trees. Um, part of the reason why they are so slow, it's really interesting, is because their metabolism is so slow. They're eating leaves, but it's not giving them a lot of nutrients. They're not getting a lot of fat or protein from it. So they're actually conserving their energy by moving so. And one thing that helps them to be a really good swimmer is that they can actually slow down that metabolism like one third of the normal rate. They can hold their breath underwater for about 40 minutes if they wanted to. I'm no sloth, so I'm going to sprint through this list of names. It's time for the Brains Honor Roll. These are the excellent humans who make our show way, way better by sharing their way, way awesome ideas. Bridget and Colin from Baltimore, Yasmin from Melbourne, Australia, Ike from London, Nathan from Vienna, Austria, Alice and Charlie from Baltimore, Azalea from Portland, Oregon, Damien from Calgary, May from New Jersey, Stuart and Rory from Sydney, Australia, Sierra from New Zealand, Solomon from Bellingham, Washington, Angelo from Maryland, Lexi from Los Angeles, Everett from Chula Vista, California, May from Pittsburgh, North Carolina, Ansel and Adele from Spring Valley, Minnesota, Abel and Ronnie from Riverside, California, Bella from Jersey City, New Jersey, Jameson from SoCal, California, Davina from Memphis, Tennessee, Lena from from Westlake Village, California, Cameron from Westminster, Massachusetts, Samuel from Edina, Minnesota, Cameron from Oxford, England, Milo from Massachusetts, Maddie and Henry from Whitefish, Montana, Hukam from Pelham, New York, Meredith from Melbourne, Australia, Cora from Seattle, Oscar from Calgary, Harlow and Nico from Jacksonville, Florida, Felix from Canfield, Ohio, Quinn from Salt Lake City, Phoenix from Winterville, Georgia, Salim from Shanghai, Sebastian and Anna from Brooklyn, New York, Catherine, Colin and Francine from Cold Spring Harbor, New York, Laura from Duarte, California, Tegan from Wellington, North Carolina, Amelia from Nashville, Vinny from Bainbridge Island, Washington, Mila and Uzi from Meadow Vista, California, Darwin from Boston, Massachusetts, and Tate from Seattle. We'll be back soon with more answers to your questions. Thanks for listening. Brains on.